Alrighty, it's about that time again. Time to put on our boogie shoes and dance the boogie. That's the purpose of this recurring call in series. I want to put on my boogie shoes and dance the boogie. And I don't care who knows. I don't care who objects. Because to boogie is to live. (laughs) You'll have to excuse my increasingly absurd attempts to kill time while I await the arrival of Sir Richard. I might just have to read out the entire lyrics of the song Bookie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. You know, Casey and the Sunshine Band is actually a great band. I just have to say that. I don't even I don't even like them ironically or sarcastically. I genuinely enjoy them and always have. Cool. Oh, there's Richard. How's it going? Who do you, who do you like? Who oh, Casey like? and the Sunshine Band because I was killing time by saying that I'm putting on my boogie shoes. Uh-huh. Okay. And I don't I don't think I even know what, I, I don't know. We're the same no, age, it, but it's, it's just absurdist blather to kill time uh-huh. while you were uh-huh. coming. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. You well. know, you must have heard the song Boogie Shoes by KC and the Sunshine Band, but it's not important. No, relevant. I don't think I have. I don't think I have. I might have heard really? it. Really? I don't know. I, don't know what I it's wanna called. put on my 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 no. my, my boogie shoes no. and are you kidding? That's what, I don't that, believe that. Boogie shoes? It's uh, what was this like from the seventies? Yeah, it's like a disco song from the seventies. Casey and the Sunshine Band. It's one of their signature songs. You tell me you never heard that. Even if you if you just exist in modern life, you must have heard it somewhere. Mm, I don't know. No, I, I I'm a philistine. Oh my god! Someone just called me a philistine. Uh, no, I never. I've never heard it. I was say I'm too young, but you're 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 uh, you're, uh, you're implying that that's no excuse. Uh, let me hear. Let me turn it on. <laughs> Let me turn it on and see if I've heard this beat before. Okay. Oh, no. See, I mean, it's a classic song. That's why I didn't believe you. Uh, no, you were you were correct. I just didn't know what the song was called. <laughs> Nothing you say can be taken at face value, though. <laughs> um, how old are you, by the way? I don't even know uh, where our age I think we talked is. about this. Weren't we the same age? I thought we? we were. Uh, I'm 36. Oh, okay. I'm 33. Uh, Am I 33? Okay. Yeah, I'm 33. Yeah, I lost track. I lost track sometime in the. Oh, uh, who cares? Okay. <clears throat> um. So, what's our agenda for today? I'm doing this in the midst of COVID. I now feel like I've joined. The party, because Congrats. now I can give my my uh, really emotional tale of having undergone COVID and can receive plaudits on social media and well wishes and uh, have everyone claim that they're going to keep me in my thoughts, even though they'll, they'll forget about it within two seconds. Um, how you how do you feel? You know, I was talking to Rob <laughs> Henderson today. We had to reschedule because he was also, he also has COVID. We were doing another podcast. Uh, oh, really? So, yeah, two of my fellow podcasters are, uh, uh, <laughs> have had COVID this week. Yeah. I'm, um, 
if this was two day, scheduled for like two days ago, I probably would have had to postpone. But now I, I know I'm kind of on the upswing. It's like I, I said, I've said this before when somebody asks, and I think you asked. It's just sort of a, you know, mild to moderate flu. And I mean, it's nothing crazy. It's not pleasant, but. This I don't know. Your, uh, it seems, it seems, your, it seems your, almost anticlimactic given how much mental energy everyone, including myself, I guess, expended on this particular disease for so long. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, sort of anticlimactic at, at this point to get it in 2022. Did you see? Uh, you I know. It feels the, lame. It feels lame. Like if I got it, it in March like, of yeah, 2020, at least then, you know, I had I could be regaling audiences with the story but now it's just like who cares yeah it's like you're it's like you're one of those people who makes a joke on twitter but it's like too late it's like you know this thing got old like six months ago uh it's getting covid now is sort of like did you see biden went to the middle east and he was supposed to not shake anyone's hands but then he forgot his instructions no i missed that he's not supposed <laughs> to shake anyone's hands because what they the still variant, haven't figured out that covid is airborne well, the new, yeah, exactly. So the, his, uh, yeah, his aides were telling reporters that he wasn't going to shake anyone's hand. So he gets off the plane, he fist bumped like the first person he sees, and then he forgets, and then he just starts shaking everyone's hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of Trump's big bugaboos, famously, was that he didn't even like the whole custom of shaking hands, and he would he disowned it. But then he, uh, you know, begrudgingly had to give up that phobia. Because you know, when you're a politician, it's just understood that you must shake hands constantly. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah, the COVID thing is. Um, yeah, I've never. I mean, I've never gotten as far as I know. I think I'm the. It's very rare. I think Iglesias on Twitter said he just got it like recently too. Um, yeah, I've never. I, I mean, a lot of people are asymptomatic, so you know, I could have had it at some point. Uh, and, and not known, but as far as yeah, as far as I know, I've never had COVID. Yeah, I mean, I've heard a bunch of anecdotal accounts on social media and also, you know, privately about it uh, spreading like wildfire at the moment. Uh, um, yeah, the thing. I mean, the thing is, it's yeah, this is going to be forever. They're trying to scare us. They're trying to make it into a thing. So if you look at COVID deaths in the U.S. Uh, well, I just looked up COVID deaths for 2022 because, you know, it hasn't been a major store. I mean, every now and then something COVID related pops up in the news cycle, but it's not like it's been this ever present story that is just dictating news consciousness day in and day out. The last week but, or two, but there's been picked it up. Well, maybe a bit, but even before the last week or two, at least if you look at the official data, the U.S. has been approaching almost 200,000 deaths in 2022. Now, I know people object to the methodology of how those deaths are assembled and how many are incidental or whatever, uh, but just taking at face value, which I don't take you at face value, but taking these data at face value for the sake of argument, it's um, about as bad as it supposedly was in 2020. Uh, well, and early, yet, early you know, we don't, we, we don't, right? early 2020, no, not, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, but, but like before but, it took uh, off, no, not deaths, De- like the, in, uh, summer 2020. No, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, at this point in 2020, yeah. at this point in 2020, yeah. so not the whole year taken in aggregate, 
the, the point is, you know, in 2020, you know, the, the latest death totals were flashed everywhere. Yeah. Such Actually, that, you know, no, CNN had a, had a counter. I'm looking and, at it right now. Yeah. Average seven-day death total right now is 410. So in 2020, uh, during the time, it was hovering around 800 or 900. So it's about half of what it was. <coughs> in summer Even in the summer? Like in the summer? It yeah, didn't, yeah um, I'm looking at summer. I'm looking at June. Here's June, seven-day average, 832. Here's July, 911. Uh, yeah, so it was it was about twice as bad as it is now. Okay. Um, yeah, it was twice as bad. Okay, I, I, I just remember when I think it was in May of 2020 when the uh, official total reached 100,000, and the New York Times did this, you know, giant bold-faced newspaper headline of how it was a, just this massive calamity to have reached the 100,000 mark, and you, you're just not seeing anywhere close to that same kind of scrutiny to the figures now. Um, and, and there could be some uh, defensible reasons why that wouldn't be the case because, you know, bad people are less concerned just because of the availability of therapeutics and vaccines and whatever. Uh, but, you know, I think it's hard to deny that there is also a partisan explanation in that, you know, paying super close attention to every conceivable COVID metric gave ammunition to the anti-Trump electoral argument. And yeah. now that that's not a factor. And, and if anything, they want to play it down because it could give our ammunition to the anti-Democratic or anti-Biden argument. Yeah, may, maybe. But, it, but uh, people were going to get tired of this. Anyway, so you're right. Summer 2021 was actually had lower was lower than uh, than now. So it was the same or lower summer 21 21, but summer 2020 was uh, like we said twice as bad. I think you're right, but people are just I mean they're tired of it. You can't just say it's like the flu. Like the flu kills tens of thousands a year. Like if a new war breaks out that kills tens of thousands of Americans a year, it's like all we talk about, right? But uh, you know the flu, we get used to it. This is this is going in that direction. You can't keep up the history forever. I wish we would. I mean, it's like, so if you have 500 deaths a day, so this is going to kill, yeah, hundreds of thousands of Americans um, this year. And that's like, that's just like the reality that like, you know, we'll take a year or two off the American life expectancy. They could probably like make this better by like just, you know, having a lot of boosters and a lot of vaccines. But like, we don't want to do that. People dislike vaccines. People dislike vaccines aren't excited about them enough to like make them like the center of policy. Uh, so this is, you know, is what it is. I'm only worried about this point. I, I don't want, you know, I don't want any more restrictions. That's, that's all I really care about. I want them to, you know, keep it down. Like if a Republican comes into office, like it's not like if the deaths were able they are not, I think they'll go back and talk about COVID. I think, I think this thing is, you know, slowly, but surely we're moving away from sort of the, uh, the panic mode. Well, I mean, what's the di- what? What difference would there be if there was a Republican president right now with regard to COVID? I mean, it would be the same policy as Biden, more or less. No, but you, I, mean, you, I don't you think th- you think you think they would talk about it. That's what I'm saying. You see, you, I don't think it'd be different. You said they talked. Oh about no, it. I don't think that they, they would necessarily be talking about it. I just think that you know, especially given Biden's electoral argument in 2020 that he was going to defeat COVID and Trump had bungled COVID. You could use these figures against Biden now as a political attack on him for having failed to keep his promises or whatever. And so I think that might be a part of the motivation why 
these kinds of figures are not being as emphasized as they otherwise might because they're just not as straightforward yeah. as a partisan reason to emphasize them as there had been. Well, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean obviously, it's also a, it's also going to be a factor that it's, there's just going to be less attention overall because people are tired of it. I guess just for the sake of argument, and I'm not even necessarily saying that I agree with this point. I'm just sort of curious how you would respond. Okay, so let's just assume that the 200,000 death figure for 2022 is is roughly accurate, and so we're a little over halfway into 2022, and then so let's just extrapolate that there's going to be approximately 400,000 deaths in 2022. Uh Do you think that attention to that or worry about that or desire to enact public policy responses to mitigate that would just be pure hysteria at this point? Or how should that be conceptualized? Well, 200,000, yeah, if you told somebody before this thing started there was this new right. thing that was going to kill 200,000 Americans a year, they'd say it's a big deal. No, four, let's, think let's, say 400, let's say 400,000 yeah, yeah. if, if tr- trends remain consistent yeah. throughout the year. Yeah. So my my view is this actually is something to worry about. I think that the thing that passes the cost benefit is vaccines, more vaccines, more boosters. I mean, it's so funny. I looked up like, you know, what you're eligible for. So like you are eligible for a third booster for if you're a normal person. If you're uh if you're 50 or over or you're immunocompromised, they recommend a fourth one. Like these numbers are just completely arbitrary. They should be, you know, crash programmed to be like the flu, where you just have it update as much as possible. You need to get rid of all the bureaucratic red tape. I mean, especially for like old people, like they should just be getting the same, like if any, you know, it would probably be better just to like not even do any more studies and just give them this, you know, the same booster every six months for forever. I think for, if you're old, that's bad, That's the best possible option. If you have other health, you know, for somebody like me or you, who's young, you know, maybe, Maybe not. Maybe we just get sick, you know, once in a once in a while. But um, I think that is that would clearly be a good policy. I don't trust us to do good policy, though. I am frightened that they're gonna, uh, you know, have masks forever. I think masks are a big deal. People think I'm crazy, but like, if we were being invaded by like a foreign, con- you know, foreign movement that wanted to make us mask for the rest of our lives, I mean, people would consider that like, you know, something that's, you know, worth worth fighting and, and dying for. I just think it's crazy that anyone would mask at this point. Um, so that's definitely not worth, you know, that's not worth it. Um, lock, you know, Europe's good lockdown. Who's they? I mean, who who do you suppose is going to be instituting these forever masking rules? Okay. Yeah. Los, Angeles County, Los Angeles County. I pay attention to where I live. Los Angeles County, the, our, our public health director is saying that if we remain high for two, for two more weeks, some kind of, you know, they have some metric that they can impose a mask mandate by the end of July. Um, so I'm worried yeah. about schools. I'm worried about localities like Los Angeles and these other, you know, crazy places. Um, you know, Europe, you know, they probably won't do this in America anymore. But in Europe, even during this last Christmas, during Omicron, they did like lockdowns. I mean, and so, you know, stuff. Doesn't yeah, really Spain had an out Spain and Portugal had an outdoor mask mandate last winter during the Omicron surge. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And this is and this is mad. I look at the yeah, I look at East Asia. I mean, they've just decided to they've decided to mask forever. Maybe that's helping them. You know, there's a preschool here. There's a preschool close by where I live. And there's like a, a preschool where all the white kids go and then one where all the Asian kids go. And the Asian kids want they line up with masks every day. Um, they they uh, they they go in their mask the whole time still. Um, they're just in, they're they're using hand sanitizer. Basically, this is and then the white and then the white preschool. They're all going in and they're just they're they're behaving like normal. They're behaving like the teachers are masked when they're indoors. The teachers take off their masks uh, outdoors and the kids are you know except for one or two 
um, are not. And it's not 100% white school. It's like 80%. There's a few Asians there. While the Asian school, I think, is completely uh, Asian as far as I can tell. Um, and so maybe, you know, maybe, you know, if you're, if you have that level of compliance where you are willing to wear M95s in every situation of your life forever, like maybe that, that helps. That's not worth it. Becoming the Taliban, becoming Saudi Arabia um, is not worth it. And the fact that people think that that's like, that's like a realistic trade-off. Uh, I don't think that's reasonable. So yeah, I mean, I would be ideally for more vaccines and less of everything else, but I, I just don't want there to be any hysteria because I don't think we'll get the vaccine thing right. And I think we're just going to get masks basically. I guess uh, my question is how do you calibrate your level of concern where it's not, where it's like proportionate to the actual deleterious impact of the disease. So 400,000, you know, accepting that that's an accurate figure seems pretty significant, but then uh, not allow that to spiral into hysteria. I, mean, I agree with you in the main on preferring non uh to do away with these, what were called non-pharmaceutical interventions um, in favor of just, you know, continuing to allow, allow the <laughs> widespread availability of vaccines and other, other treatments. Um, but, uh, so I mean, I think the, 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 the Saudi Arabia analogy, I think, goes a little far. Are we beheading uh, violators of mask mandates? No, but it's the, it's the I mean, the dress code is, you know, it's, 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 it's it, there's a similarity there. Interestingly around me, so in Jersey City, uh, the governor belatedly removed the public school mask mandate in i think it was february uh but even as late as june um the charter schools you know which have their own sort of governing apparatus that is somewhat distinct i don't know the exact particulars of how it's structured but it's somewhat distinct from like a typical uh, public school obviously um, they set their own mask policies. So I saw a group of kids. I, I, I might have mentioned this to you. Or I, I definitely I tweeted about it at the time. But there was a I have a, I live across the street from a park, and so they were having the char, local char, charter school was having its annual field day, like end of school year field day thing. Where, you know they they compete in these races and sports and games and everything. And uh, they were walking back to the school and like half the kids had were had masks on and so did the, the chaperones. And um, I asked, you know, is this required? And he said, yeah, it's still required in, in, the, in the school building. Mm-hmm. So ironically, you know, the, um, the charter schools seemingly are more likely to have stringent mask requirements than just the, the typical public schools, at least around here, which you would expect would be the opposite. Yeah, maybe. So as far as how you calibrate your response, you know, there's a whole like field of law that said basically you have to judge all government regulations uh, through this lens. It's called you know law and economics. Uh, it's usually associated with cons- uh, conservatives who are skeptical of government regulation. And you have to make assumptions and you have to uh, sort of go, you know, go there. Like how much does this reduce quality of life versus how much does it make a difference? Now, 
the mask thing, you know, the way I look at it is it, it's a big infringement on personal liberty and comfort and everything. It doesn't make a big difference. I mean, we've had states and localities that have had mask mandates and some that others, like you can like very squint, you can squint very hard and play with the data and find a little bit difference. So, you know, I say it's not worth it. You look at something like vaccines where basically you have like overwhelming data, like you could look at the uh, death rate and, you know, it's, it's, it's much less uh, long, you know, it's much less of a bother. And some people could, would rather be masked forever than, you know, use a vaccine. I think those people are sort of objectively crazy you know they can they can make that choice uh if they want um but yeah there's uh philippe lebron uh for uh cspi uh center uh, org you go to uh, my organization's website he's got a blog where he does the cost benefit uh in one of his he has a blog called war on science you could find the tab there and he makes he makes some basic assumptions he says okay if, if it saved this much lives according to this this many lives according to this model like a lockdown you know it was about lockdowns uh how much you know you would have to sort of do a calculation about how much people's life was reduced, right? So it's like, if you would like be able to add one year of your life, but you had to like have a lockdown, like, you know, like, you know, how long would you want a lockdown? So you basically, he made some basic, I forgot exactly how he did it, but he made some basic assumptions, basically found that lockdowns weren't anywhere close worth it. I mean, you can, you can quibble with his analysis, but you have to do something like that. You have to say, well, you know, your analysis is wrong. I think that like, you need to make this assumption. Like some people think masks are nothing. If you think they're literally nothing, I mean, I think those people are crazy, then yeah, mask forever. But obviously, you know, everyone uh, doesn't agree with you. So some people's attitudes, like if it can help just even a little bit, like I'll do it because it's just like, it's nothing to me. Right. Um, But yeah, you need to basically, you have to give people these choices and you have to sort of, you have to figure it, figure it out at the societal level. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. You know, the policy aspect of COVID that I was most exercised by was never really the mask component. I know that you are very emotionally invested in that issue. (laughs) I wasn't really. I still am not really. I mean, if it's required for me to wear it, I might find it slightly annoying now and irritating, but I'm not going to, like, impute all these grandiose ideological or political dimensions to it. I got more interested in the concept of vaccine mandates, which I know you don't apparently find yeah, as yeah, we're diff- we're quite as consequential. Vac- I think vaccine, yeah, I think the vaccine mandate is, is less yeah intrusive, but you think you think the vaccine mandate is much more intrusive, huh? Yeah, I think being mandated or coerced to inject a certain substance in your body, that is, to me, is just inherently more intrusive than having to wear a certain garment in different circumstances. Yeah, that, I know people feel the that wearing way, but the I, garment I, doesn't have any permanent physiological effect on your body. Yeah, I know I know that many people feel that way. If, the, if I thought the vaccine was super dangerous, then I would, you know, agree. But no, I think, you know, I would rather... Well, it's not even a matter of it being dangerous or not. It's just a matter of it being like a mandatory injection well, but, but, but mandatory i mean i have to mandate I, there's a lot more like you know at least at least the government's done with i mean the government forces you to have, at least they're done with you at some point they're not following you around for the rest of your life well no and, that, and that's why that's why like starting last fall i got more and more into the issue because the whole logic around these vaccine mandates especially at, like universities was that you know you'd get it and then you'd be able to return to normalcy right and then we saw all throughout the the fall and even into the winter and spring term last year, universities couldn't roll back this sort of bureaucratic inertia around more and more restrictions that they were justifying at the time due to Delta, then Omicron. 
And so the whole justification for why those mandates were necessary ended up collapsing, and they basically just overrode it. Um, so so that, that to me was ominous in that it showed how the uh, – a, a justification for a, for a policy that would otherwise be seen as fairly extreme but uh, still understandable given the circumstances was then just um, trashed because of the inability of uh, administrators to change course and also the inability of anybody to challenge the idea that these administrators could just arrogate more and more unchecked power to themselves to surveil adults, essentially, and infantilize them. Yeah, I don't support the vaccine mandate. I, I sort of supported them when I thought that maybe like this is like uh, you know, the if this would get like the case level down and the death rate down enough that like maybe they would chill out on everything else, then I then you know I would t- I would take it. I mean, I honestly I know people are offended by that, but if like you have if they're if they're like if they can be a peace if the lunatics can be a peace somehow with vaccine mandates, I mean, I would I would bite the bullet. But obviously, that's not that's not going to happen. We're going to they're going to try to restrict people for the rest of their lives, and it, you know, from my point of view. That's, you know, it's, it's not just, and we, we know the vaccines, I mean, the, the immunity wanes over time. People got vaccinated and, you know, they're getting sick. I mean, I would, I would take a vaccine. I, I trust the vaccine enough that I would take it, you know, regularly. Um, and definitely there's no, there's no, um, you know, father hysteria to like get people to cover their faces and, you know, to lock people down in universities. I don't know if they're still doing this, but I, I know they're still having, they must have masks mandate somewhere. Right. Um, you know, with all, you know, with, uh, with, if they could put that sort of, I think it would be more useful, especially if you could just give it, get the vaccines to the people who believe in it and want to use it. But they don't, you know, they could, they could always be boosted and they don't really have to worry much about the people who don't want to get vaxxed. I mean, the vaccines work so well if you, if you, if you keep the immunity up um, that, you know, you don't have to worry about your unvaxxed neighbor. Uh, so yeah, the vaccine mandates, obviously people don't like them. I'll defer to, you know, what people, people's feelings here. Um but yeah, unfortunately, I mean, they're gonna. Did you see, by the way, Chuck Schumer? There's a story in Politico that Chuck Schumer is trying to negotiate some bill with Manchin uh, before the August recess, and he got Schumer got COVID, so he's in isolation, and this is like hurting the. He's in. He's so he's it's hurting the negotiations. So I thought how funny it would be if like Democrats forever like were all, had to go into quarantine like a few times a year, and like you know how that would like hurt them in like politics, right? They would just have to sort of. You know, take take time off every now and then, and and then Republicans would just have a natural advantage in everything they wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think I. Th- I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm. I suspect that most Senate Republicans, if they knew that they were positive for COVID, would probably also want to I, isolate, I would, especially because have... like most of the set, most members of the Senate are pretty old. I, I would, I'd be, I'd bet that Republicans are, let's say like it's on the margins, right? If you, if you have like maybe a little bit of a sniffle and you can go test or not, I think Republicans probably much less likely to test. And so that'll, they'll end up, you know, they'll probably end yeah. up not doing that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I was. Somebody should, fed, I, mean, I, I was, could, de- I was figure uh, this out because I think somebody went back and they looked at Republicans who, this was early in the pandemic. They looked at Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress who'd gotten COVID and they should have been about equal, but Democrats were like, you know, much, much more likely to announce they have COVID. So maybe Republicans are getting COVID and just hiding it or they're just not testing and they don't care. I mean, I think that's, I think a lot of people on the right are just like, they're over it. They're just sort of ideologically opposed to to testing or thinking about it in any way. (laughs) Which, I mean, that seems like uh, an overcorrection. I mean, I was fed up with and wrote a lot about 
especially last fall and winter, the endless testing kind of paradigm that had been foisted on everyone where they were freaking out. Otherwise, healthy people who would have no idea that they were carrying this virus by ha- this with by this sort of ritual of you know never ending asymptomatic testing which was just ridiculous but you know what this uh when i felt you know genuinely sick this past weekend i was just curious if i had finally gotten covid so i figured okay we might as well get the get a test under these circumstances you're isolated sure enough, you're not you're not seeing other people or anything no i mean I'm not doing a strict isolation, but yeah, I mean, more or less, I'm isolated. I guess it's it's not like I enacted some kind of extreme protocol or something. I'm just you know taking it easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. As far as you know, I, I just remember recalling this because I really hadn't thought about COVID that much in the past couple of months because other issues had supplanted it. Um, but in terms of the booster. You know, I, I decided not to get it when it was being – everyone was being hectored to get it uh, around the Omicron period. In part I – mean, it was largely a political reason why I didn't want to get it. So I didn't think it was dangerous necessarily or I didn't think that, you know, it was going to have any kind of adverse impact on me necessarily. But politically, I was against the concept of just requiring regular intervals of boosters – in perpetuity in order to enable people to engage in just regular aspects of life. Like there was a time where a lot of jurisdictions were requiring not just vaccines in order to like go to a stadium or something like this was the case in San Jose, San Jose. And I haven't followed up on it in a while, but at least back in the winter, San Jose instituted a rule where in order to attend the main like basketball, uh, I think it was the main hockey arena, and you know other event arena, um, they were that was a mandatory booster. So not just full of vaccination, yeah. Uh, yeah. regular so boosters as well. And, I, yeah. I, and that that to me was a bridge too far. Um, so I decided I didn't get the booster on that ground partially. But the, the, another ground on which I might have gotten the booster was just pure convenience. Because if you travel around to Europe, I mean there have been a bunch of times now where because I'm not boosted, I'm considered just unvaccinated. So having gotten vaccinated a year ago, yeah, which I did, doesn't enable me to <laughs> well, bypass any of, the, any of the restrictions anymore. Well, it's, it's funny because I did get boosted. I got boosted maybe it was, I don't know, six, eight months ago. So it's like, you know, it's waning by now. And it's like, I'm, I think like in five years, I'll still be vaccinated. I'll be still be fully vaccinated and you won't be, even though it was like, you know, the difference between us is like six months, five years ago. I think it's just like, it's so stupid. It's like the official thing is like, if you are two and then you get a a third and then that's it, they're going to leave us on our own, you know, for uh, 20 years from now, I'll still be, I'll still be with that. Well, for the, actually for the, for the purposes of travel in Europe, that's not quite right because, so for example, when I, um, in March, flew from Poland to Belgium. The rule to enter Belgium was that you were only considered fully vaccinated if you had had your most recent dose within 200-something days. So it wasn't just you had to have a booster. It was that you had to be, you had to be up to date in terms of the length of time that's passed since you last had your shot. 
Um, and it was the same entering Spain, even just in, even just last month where I was not considered fully vaccinated anymore per the protocols of Spain. And so I had to get tested again. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, yeah. I was talking to Rob this morning. He was just going, he's not this morning, a couple hours ago, he was going to, uh, France. And yeah, so the rule is you are, he told me that the rule for France was you, if you had it in some time period, you're, you were fully vaccinated. If not, if you were fully vaccinated, you had to take like a test in like the first three days. But if you were not vaccinated, you had, or if not fully vaccinated, you had to take like a test within the first 24 hours. Is it something like that? You know, with France, it's funny because I entered France via rail in um, April. And I think France has more or less the same rule as Belgium, but I pretty, I just went up to the border agent. And he was like, "Yeah, whatever, just go." <laughs> so they, they didn't even care to check. So, but on a, I think for air travel, it's going to be much more stringent uh, in terms of making sure that you satisfy all their various kind of arcane criteria. Wait, so so they, they, they don't even enforce so Belgium has a vex um, uh, requirement for coming in but they don't enforce it they just wave you they waved you through no Belgium did enforce it Belgium did enforce it because I flew in like I flew from Poland to Belgium but then on a different trip in April when I took a train from London to Paris the, the French border agents didn't care <laughs> that's funny so there's a so they just let me go in. That is that is some that is an interesting study of state capacity. If you look at China and like you ever read about what China's doing, like you go to the mechanic, like the mechanic needs to like there's an app on your phone that tells the mechanic like if you if you are like supposed to be staying at home and like you imagine a country like that, then you imagine France like not even checking uh, you know, when you're coming in through the border. That's yeah, that's a big difference in well, skepticism and antipathy toward the state is notorious in France. Like when I was when I first time I went to France last summer it was right after they had instituted their vaccine passport system nationwide. <clears throat> and everybody I'd asked about it was either like apathetic or just annoyed by, like I didn't, I didn't No, granted it was, it was not a random sample of people that was, you know, methodologically calculated or anything, but everybody who I just happened to cross who I uh, just casually asked about it, thought it was like a ridiculous system that made no sense. And in fact, they were. Compl- I heard complaints that it was easier for, it kind of, um, at least in Paris, it gave an advantage to tourists over the regular citizens because the citizens of France had to sign up for this you know, national app system in order to present their passport. Whereas if you're a foreign, like I just showed a little screenshot on my phone of my... Uh, the pass that I got from some hospital system in uh, New Jersey. Mm. And so like, I didn't have to like go through the formal app procedures, whereas the, the French citizens did. So they thought that was annoying, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I wasn't particularly surprised that the French border agents were kind of blase in enforcing that uh, requirement last time I went in. But, mm. um, you know, I was, I yeah, the French yeah. thing is interesting because I was watching some uh, rally for Zamor. Uh, that was just a you know several months ago, and they were all these you know some more supposedly the far right candidate. They're all um, they're all out they're all outside and 100 percent mask compliance. And I'm just thinking like you know imagine a Republican rally being outdoors. You know how many masks you, you would never see it. I mean, so you, you still see uh, apparently a lot more 
compliance of this stuff. Uh, yeah. Well, I went to a Trump. US. I went to a Trump. I went to a Trump rally in rural Georgia in 2020 ahead of the election, and uh, there were Trump-themed masks being distributed. And this was in it was, what um, month was this? This was uh, I think it was October of 2020. Yeah, I think yeah, but I think back. I think it, it became more and more. Like, like, yeah, I, I'm not surprised at that. I think, I think it, it was like, uh, back then, like, before the vaccine, I think it was like, it was, it was still partisan, but it wasn't like now. We're like, no, it wasn't. And, 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 you know, there was, uh, I, I think maybe like, uh, it, it was more than you might have thought in terms of people wearing masks at that particular event. Now I think it would be totally different. But, um, I would maybe say 30, 40% of people. Maybe thirty percent of people at the Trump rally were were wearing masks. Mm. Um, it was indoors or outdoors? No, it was, it was outdoors. Maybe a little less. Maybe like twenty, twenty to thirty. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. So some, somewhere around there, but it wasn't like a thing. You know, it was. Uh, you know, some people wanted to wear them and some didn't. And I don't know. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like a level of vehemence around it. At least not that I could detect. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's go. we have a, a bunch of people queuing up, so let's go to some callers now, and then um, we'll, we'll touch on some Russia-Ukraine stuff in a little bit. All right, let's go to Eric. Don't blame it on the sunshine. Don't blame it on the moonlight. Don't blame it on the good time. I was waiting for your intro, your snippy intro. I like to come in hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm uh, sorry. Uh, I guess this is going to sound like I'm going to sound very basic, but um, what, what what was the topic? Uh, how to get paid by Russia in six easy steps? <laughs> uh, the topic was just me sort of frivolously thinking of what the topic could be. Um, I guess partially because I had noticed in recent days and weeks that. The allegation that I'm being paid by Russia is being leveled more aggressively than it had been in the past. Now, I'm somebody who has been accused of being paid by Russia off and on for over six years now, literally, because I was sort of in early on the whole Russiagate saga. So that was just a standard generic riposte to me. Uh, But I've noticed that it's now being said of me with a bit more like sincerity and a bit more just factual certainty uh, by a lot of accounts and this is mostly on Twitter and then I, I you know get some stuff through email by a lot yeah, of accounts be, who seem to be actually, actually in Ukraine like Ukrainian accounts or their adjuncts seem to be making this al- allegation with just total unequivocal certitude it's well, you a bit different than how it worked in the past where usually it would be suspected slightly more sarcastically that I was being paid by Russia. Now it seems like a bona fide belief. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so something that happened recently, um, I want to ask you about uh, two figures. Number one, Jackson Hinkle. But what I believe is he was banned recently because he he spread misinformation about... um, against the proven and non-debunked concept of Putin's price hike. So he put a video up saying that it was kind of Biden's, you know, arguing it's Biden's price hike or, or, uh, you know, insofar as it's U.S. policy that's driving it, as well as, you know, towards Russia. But then um, 
what they did was YouTube cited a press release or some just article put out by the State Department and the State Department just and it just said this make no mistake or something other, uh, you know, essentially um, some State Department functionary can publish a little article and then that has to be the truth and you should not be able to go against it. So I want to ask you about Jackson Hinkle. And then I want to ask you, um, I saw a clip going around, but Nick Fuentes, he said he really hates you. So I don't know if you've ever uh, dealt with him, but what do you think of him? And what do you think of Jackson Hinkle? He had to go to COVID. Me, he, he hates me or Richard? Oh, oh, you, Michael Tracy. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Yeah, but he maybe blocked, he also he hates Richard. Me. Probably. If, if he actually, probably he does. definitely also hates Richard. So. I'm oh, sorry. I haven't. I haven't I don't seen the clip. Guys. I think you guys are all right. I haven't seen the clip. I think he hates me because I was m- mocking him back when he was leading Stop the Steal rallies, and just talking utter nonsense about 2020 election stuff and basically scamming his followers. And, you know, thinking that he was this somehow brave leader of his troops by uh, going down to D.C. and, you know, immersing himself and his minions in that whole mythology around the 2020 election, which is so tedious now to even think about or never mind relitigate. So I, I don't know if he's talked about me recently, but I'm assuming that's what it derives from um as far as jackson hinkle you know i'm peripherally aware of this person i've never watched his videos um so i don't want to speak out of school i don't know if you're familiar at all with him richard but i i got no i don't know the name i don't know i don't want to i don't want to be too judgmental but i have gotten some weird vibes from whatever he's about where i think he like did a whole steven crowder thing where it's like didn't he go somewhere to some public area and set up a stand yeah. or a booth saying, you know, Putin is right, prove me wrong or something to that effect? You know what I'm and talking I, about? Well, I don't have any issue with that as a genre of Internet content. Um, I, I guess I don't inherently have a problem with it, but it's just <laughs> it could be a little just weird. I, I just don't know what his full deal is. Um, or who he is even really, but yeah, I did see that his YouTube channel was demonetized on probably spurious grounds. So, I mean, nothing new there. He he just, he's um, a self-described tanky. Yeah, I mean that's that's a little weird. It's weird, uh, but you know, I I mean, obviously, I I I want him to be able to dissent and have a healthy environment for. All yeah, I mean, I I agree. And he's he happens to be very handsome and articulate. Jordan okay. Hinkle is that his name? I want to see Jackson. Jackson. Hin- Jackson. Jackson. Hinkle, yeah. Okay. Let's see this. This hunk. <laughs> I actually met him because he showed up at the after they they um you know I I went to both oh, he's, the the housing he is he is pretty, yeah he, uh, he is handsome. I mean, Michael, there's look a up thing this, to this guy. He looks like a movie star. Okay. Um, let's see. I, I, I've seen his avatar. Is that, wait, are there that any shirtless photos? Are there, are there any shirtless photos I can browse? Uh, I'll DM you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there's a photo of him looking incredibly buff. Muscles bulging. Yeah. So I, I mean, I can see the appeal. Nice head of hair. But yeah, he, yeah, we're very he's talked with, to Aaron Mate. He's talked to Max Blumenthal. He's talked to, um... McGregor and you know so yeah I, I know I know he's I oh wait so oh at, at odds 
Oh, he has a whole workout genre, so there are shirtless photos. Okay, and he's ripped. There you have it. That's why I guess that's <laughs> why they that's why they fear him. Out of the closet here, yeah. This is, this is <laughs> I think he has the potential to become very not. popular if he isn't, you know, suppressed by the algorithm, right? Is is he is he is he new? Has he not been around for a what while? What is his back? What is his background? Is he a is he an actor of some kind? Because I, there's a photo of yeah. him on like a certain sort of red carpet or premiere with HBO. Well, he lives in yeah, LA. Right. It's funny because, to my mind, he has a California accent. You know, he he has these certain. Sometimes he has these inflections from Spanish, um, but he's like, you know, he's like from like what Santa Barbara or whatever Long Beach or um, that area. You know, I'm from I'm from you know the suburbs of L.A. It's funny, and then I think of Vouch. You know, Vouch. He has a Beverly Hills accent. That's like his half his appeal. It's just he sounds like someone from Beverly Hills, <laughs> which he is. <laughs> but in any case. Um, Anyways, I want to ask, because the, the idea there was that, um, you know, if Jackson is censored from YouTube and all these other platforms, and he has to go over and, what, use Nick Fuentes' platform? Because they had a weird thing where they announced that he would join their cozy TV platform, which is, you know... Anyways, if you keep up with just anti-censorship but not being destroyed by the, you know, algorithm, I find that all interesting. Uh, they're well, uh, well, he hasn't been totally banned from YouTube, you right? He's just been targeted. demonetized. They're both being targeted. I think he's just been demon. I mean, as far as I know, I, I the last I saw, he's just been demonetized you know, from YouTube, right? Which is strike. now he's fourteen days ban, and then they're going. They're going to go. To oh, okay. Right? Well, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah I, mean, I, 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 I would, I would be curious to see what exactly he did that supposedly was a violation of the terms of service. I doubt yeah. it's anything that would seem particularly egregious, other than yeah. it could be construed as somehow supportive of. Yeah. Russia. Mike, Michael, you know, so got like, nothing new. We've got like eight people reading. We, if we give like five minutes each, that's going to take up. I think we should just. Okay. Should yeah, let's, to, uh, let's, let's blow through. Thanks, All right, Tom. Jack, you're up. Hey, guys. Um, really appreciate this opportunity. Uh, by the way, why is everything liberal is a great article, Richard. Love that one. Thank you. Um, yeah. So my question is just about neo-McCarthyism. And, you know, obviously with Russiagate and Trump, we saw more voices being added to the movement. And um, then after that Russiagate collapse, uh, I feel like maybe the the voices in that camp, maybe they've gotten louder over the years. But I just feel like the movement as a whole, it's, it's the voices are getting louder, but I don't think there's there's more people that are kind of joining that movement. I guess my question is, where do you guys see that like the, the trend going now and in the next few years? The Russiagate sort of Russiagate are just just smearing people as Russian assets. I mean, Michael is talking about how it seems like people are are a little bit more convinced that that he's being paid by the Russians. And I just didn't know if you guys had any opinions on where you think that whole. I trend think that like when Trump was running for president in 2016, you could like take a more uh, sort of moderate position on Russia, on NATO, and things like that. People would still like say this is what Putin wants or whatever. But it was sort of you know it was sort of a you know you could argue, you could make these arguments. It's much more difficult now in the mainstream. Uh, at the same time, I mean, I think we did. We and Michael have talked about in previous weeks the sort of conservative, sort of uh, like uh, sort of anti-war movement that um, you know I think that I, I think is a little bit more serious than 
uh, he he does. And there is, you know, just less concern with what, like, you know, on the right, there's just less concern in general with what um, liberals or the media are saying. So I think, yeah, I think you have, it's like everything else. It's like this polarization where the anti-Russian, um, you know, the, the pro-war people are uh, just more extreme on this stuff. And then there's, you know, a fewer people who just, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a small minority of conservatives because most of them are like, you know, Mitch McConnell, they're just taking the, the standard position on uh, Ukraine. But, you know, there is a minority that's more immune to this stuff. Yeah, and you know, going back to to RussiaGate, you know, I think first it should be emphasized that a lot of people in probably a vast majority of people in the media or the media orbit don't accept and never accepted that RussiaGate actually quote collapsed as a narrative. I mean, I I, I can still vividly recall that when. Bill Barr first issued his letter, basically summarizing the findings of the Mueller report before the report came out, and then the report did ultimately come out like a month later. The attacks, the vitriol, and the the anger against this kind of subset of media figures, which Richard wasn't really involved in at the time, uh, but it was, you know, myself, Greenwald, Taibbi, Mate, a couple others... Um, the attacks on us, and I'm not necessarily equating myself with any of uh, any of them, but the attacks really intensified during that period because people were upset that we could claim grounds for vindication. Now, I never personally ran around trumpeting that I had been vindicated, even though it had been true that I was one of the few people who, from the very early stages of Russiagate, was kind of probing and dissecting the contradictions and inconsistencies and factual deficiencies in that narrative. Um, but uh, I, I, it, would be, it would be a bit haughty to just, you know, say that, oh, I've been proven right and, you know, kiss my tukus or something to that effect. But that's what I was, we were accused of doing, like going on this victory tour or something. Um, and... So what you saw was that, you know, ancillary narratives got continuously spun so that Russiagate was never even really repudiated as having failed evidentiarily by the people who had been pushing it. I mean, the Washington Post and the New York Times still have their shiny Pulitzer Prizes for all their reporting uh, in 2017 and 2018 that fueled the rest of the media ecosystem. Because I don't know if you recall, but like, there were, there were days on which you'd have multiple so-called blockbusters or bombshells that would drop uh, every couple of hours based on some snippet of a rumor that had been laundered through the security services and then published in the New York Times. And then that would be the material that every, every cable news station would go on and that would drive frenzies that were nonstop on, on social media. Um, but there was never really much of a thoroughgoing reckoning at all with, with how that narrative failed. In, in fact, it, it, it's to be expected because I always said that Russiagate had become this unfalsifiable narrative and in that sense had been akin to an article of faith, meaning that it wasn't epistemically conducive to falsification in the minds of the people who were promoting it. Um, 
so you know that that trend started right away at the very point where you would expect that okay now this narrative really has crumbled you know when the Mueller report came out <laughs> it disproved the very kind of thesis that had been touted as going to be vindicated by the Mueller report um so because you know right after that you know they they went to the Ukraine impeachment and that incorporated elements of Russiagate and then it really came to a head I think in a way when the Ukraine war started because that really negated any prospect that there could be a retrospective analysis of where the media or the think tank apparatus or what have you or the security state officials went wrong on Russiagate because now Russia is exalted even more fulsomely to you know enemy number one. Um, so, you know, there was a very diligent job done to ensure that Russiagate really was never interrogated, uh, even in hindsight, for the, the farce that it was. So uh, I think that's just going to now continue, but it's going to be more directly connected to the you know the debates around obviously the, the Ukraine war, but but Russiagate was really a key precedent uh, for the for why the discursive landscape is constituted in the way that it is right now. I don't know, R- R- Richard. Did you follow Russiagate at the time, like when it was going on? Because I know you kind of yeah, came onto the scene a little bit later. But like, what did, what's your general thought on that? I know Russiagate as a term is kind of vague, but like, what what do you no, I was. What did you take um, away from that? I, I was, yeah, I was following politics before I was, you know, writing about politics publicly. So yeah, of course I was, uh, I was following along like uh, everyone, everyone else was. I, you know, I really saw it as sort of a way for like the, um, you know, the basically spooks at government. Uh, we what we call the deep state to basically. Um, to basically head off any challenge to sort of the narrative that NATO was this great thing that needed to expand. Um, I think it was, this was, that was clearly what was going on. I mean, I think the Ukraine, the Ukraine impeachment, I mean, I think that that was like, that was sort of different. That was actually, we, we had the tape and that was, you know, I think that was clearly like what they said was going on was actually going on. Uh, but it was a different theory from Russiagate, which was that basically Trump wanted, you know, love Putin or was getting paid by Putin. This was just Trump wanted to dirt on Biden to, to win re-election. Um, and well, so, no, it wasn't yeah. an entire, I mean, it wasn't an entirely different theory from Russiagate, actually. And you had to get pretty deep into the weeds to glean this. But, I mean, well, there was this thing was about Trump, Manafort well, giving... Uh, well, Manafort, I mean, the, 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 the idea that was that Trump was committing an, an offense against the national security of the United States by supposedly freezing weapons shipments to Ukraine to help Russia. So no, no, it was, Russia, it was help, Russian it was interference Trump, it was, was still like the overarching yeah. thematic No, but it was to backdrop. help Trump. It, was, it wasn't to help Russia. It was to help Trump. He wanted. He was. He was fine giving them weapons to fight Russia. It just had to be um, to get dirt on Hunter Biden. So that's a different theory. Well, I mean, no, I mean, like, go back and look at the actual text of the articles of impeachment. It includes this idea that Trump compromised national security, not just that he was trying to get well, materials no, no, of course to they help believe, Of course they believe that, but his intention, nobody thought this intention here was because he loved Putin. He was ready to give it up. Oh, yes, he like did. Nancy Pelosi got up 
what they the did. Articles I, of improvement said all roads lead to Putin. That was her explanation no, I, for I Trump's under, conduct. I understand the narr- narrative, but the idea of what was happening on that call with Zelensky was not that he was doing it out of love for Putin. The story was, and I think you know, it was clear from the transcripts, what he, what he cared about was um, his, own, his own re-election. He wanted to get there. If Zelensky came and said, yes, we're going to indict Hunter Biden, uh, here in Ukraine, he would have given you know Zelensky whatever he wanted. I think you know I think Democrats sort of acknowledged that it wasn't about Putin. Although they, they might have said it. Well, no, I mean, Democrats really didn't acknowledge that. They very consciously and robustly interwove yeah, the yeah, preceding fine. narrative around Russian interference to give extra weight to the offense that they were accusing Trump of committing. No, you're right. You're you're right that that's that's true. Um, but, but uh, you know, the only thing I'm sort of just emphasizing is that the, the Ukraine thing, the Zelensky call wasn't completely um, made up. Um, no, like it wasn't made up. Sort of, yeah, so, so they were like completely illegitimate, like some of the Russiagate stuff uh, was. But yeah, yeah, that's, you know, my, my feelings about the, the thing as a whole track with yours. Uh, Michael, yeah. I'm not going to be able to have a lot of time, so that's why I just want to get... I just wanna okay, get yeah, yeah, let, let's, let's, speed, let's speed on through... The uh, remaining callers. All right, Matt, you're up. Hey, Michael. Um, we talked a lot. By the way, still in Romania, still waiting for that thing. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Send me uh, send me follow up emails about that every so often. So I dude, I'll, I keep it on my radar. Yeah. But actually, this one's for uh, old Hanania here. So I read your book. I'm a busy guy, though. I'm gonna miss something. Um, but you have this statistic in there that's like eighty something per- over eighty percent of generals go work for defense contracting companies yeah um, it's it's a hundred it's a hundred now for the three and four star generals but yeah it's a hundred now you would think one guy would go for uh like a mckinsey or something you know um so treading lightly here and again i i you know busy guy uh might have missed it and you might not even be able to get the statistic but like what does the revolving door over the intelligence community look like is it just all msnbc or I've never looked at the numbers. Now, if you just want to start Googling random, you know, high level people in the CIA, I think you would probably find. I do not. <laughs> yeah. I think you would, yeah, you would find, you'd find probably something similar. John Bolton, actually in his um, uh, memoirs, and I reviewed it for the American conservative. And I, I think I might've mentioned this in there. He talks about like how after he's like, before he comes back into be in government to be Trump's national security advisor, he's basically like, just juggling all these corporate responsibilities. He can't like keep up with them all because like, you know, these have like 10 corporations, like he's on the board of and they're calling him and he's calling them back. Um, so yeah, anyone. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, he finds uh, doing coups hard work as well. (laughs) You see David Trump tried to, David Frum tried to like, you know, Bolden's ill-fated joke, like, you know, it it, it, uh, hurt American (laughs) national security. I truly, I just, I just, I just, I just reread the chapter. I actually never had fully read it, but I just read the chapter of Bolton's memoir on Venezuela, where he's just openly talking about how the Trump administration at his direction was organizing to execute an operation to overthrow the government of Venezuela. It's like this is new information. That was the public policy. That was the public policy that they they recognized the new government. (laughs) I mean, that's that's that's. By the way, I'm sure you guys are too mature for this. But uh, way too mature. But there's this comedian you've probably heard of. He's a big internet sensation. His name's Nick Mullen. He's he's met John Bolton twice on television. And there's clips. And it's just the most <laughs> bizarre meeting of the world. It's really. 
You really I look like that up. I know who Nick. I know who Nick Mullen is. I was not aware that he had ever encountered John Bolton. Bro, I met been, him. It was on this show called Red Eye on Fox, and twice they put him on with Bolton, and they're interacting, and it's like <laughs> this, this thing is so weird. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I met John Bolton right before he was named national security advisor by Trump. Because there was a time where it was like there were rumors that he might be named it, but it seemed a little bit too far fetched even for Trump. Um, this was in 2018. Trump him to his face, yeah. though, right? Like in the Oval, there's there's a story where it's like Bolt, like he told some ambassador that Bolton wants to bomb them all. Yeah, well, I think he said that. Didn't he say that in the middle of a meeting with North Korea, with the North <laughs> Korean officials? Am I am I remembering that right, Richard? There was some meeting where they're all sitting at a table. What? And he and he points at. John Bolton says, "Yeah, this yeah, this guy would bomb you into smithereens if he had his." I think, yeah, right? I, that that uh, that sounds familiar. I remember there was once with Mike Pence where he said they were talking about gay something, and you know, Pence he's like, "This guy would hang them all." So Trump does do that sort of thing. So yeah, it, it does sound like Trump. I don't remember that specifically, yeah. but yeah, it sounds yeah. Like that. All right, man, I'm going to look up those clips. We have to keep speeding on through our calls. The Nick so. Bolton red eye, it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks all right, a lot. Well, I'll right. email you. I'll thanks, email man. You. Yeah, Bye. yeah. Sounds good. Bye. All right, uh, Tracy, you are up. I, I like your first name. It's similar to my <laughs> last name. Um, well, let's see who spells it the right way, you know. Um, I, it's got to be some spelled with an E or bust. <laughs> uh, well, my name was spelled with an E on my birth certificate, and then my mom changed it because she knew better. Really? <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'd, no, like, sorry. I'd I mean, like to have a word with many- her. There are there are also T R A Y C's. There are T R A C I's. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Anyway, um, thanks so much for everything you do. A um, couple things. One, uh, Jackson Hinkle had his own show, um, uh, and, but he's on Jimmy Dore quite a lot. So um, I, I sent you a note uh, on the platform here to let you know about that. But you can find him there from time to time. Uh, but I wanted to comment on the masks topic can we go back to that for a second yeah yeah sure so i would i'm in san francisco and i would say that uh wearing masks or not wearing masks is really a class issue because uh if you go into the affluent communities in san francisco whether it's white or uh, other ethnicities nobody's wearing masks and um, if you go into the less affluent communities, whether it's Asian or Latino, people who have dealt with probably COVID a lot more because, you know, over the last two years, because they have to, you know, work, you know, out in the world more, not like working from home at their computers, um, you know, they're, they're wearing masks more religiously. And, I, you know, for example, my family, you know, uh, They've all just gotten COVID because they have been very loose about not wearing masks. Everybody's um, been hit with it or it's the second time they've gotten it and it's harder the second time. And they're all vaxxed and boosted and they all were demanding mandates all over the place. I mean, I personally, I find it very hypocritical for people to mandate vaccinations, although I've gotten them myself because it's, it's an invasion of your body and it's hypocritical for liberals or people on the left who don't want you to mandate abortions. Um, I'm sorry, who, who don't want the government to uh, mandate your inability to get an abortion. Um, I find that very hypocritical, you know, invasion of your body versus not invasion of your body. Uh, uh, anyway, I wanted to point that out. And one more point about ma- masks is that my daughter 
who wears masks all the time in school, whether it's mandated or not, she's she's fine with it. They've all been very brave, these kids. And she's doing summer school, um, an advanced geometry class, and all the Asian kids, they're all wearing masks. Everybody's respectful. They've gotten used to it, and they don't feel like it's invading their their liberty. They just know it's a, a like a, a situation of the times, and they've taken it seriously and responsibly, and they're cool with it. And that's yeah. my I mean, kids will get used to anything. I think if you go and you put girls in burqas, I mean, they will. You will go and you'll interview a sixteen-year-old girl in a country like Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia. They'll be they'll be okay with it. So I'm not surprised that children are okay with it. Um, you know, you say my body, my choice. I mean, I would rather be injected with stuff than have to cover my face. I mean, I know people have opposite opposite feelings, but you know, showing my face in public is very important to me. So I I am uh, yeah I'm. Uh, uh, I, I agree with sort of the principle that we should be more consistent with this bodily autonomy stuff. And I, I'm, you know, I'm for pretty much a libertarian. I'm for legalizing drugs and all these, uh, all these other things. But yeah, I, I consider masking a, a huge infringement. If people don't don't consider it a huge infringement, I mean, that that's fine. I just I don't want the mandates. I mean, I, and as I, far I, as the I, um, oh yeah, I was just gonna say that. as far as far as the class <laughs> issue in terms of mask wearing, yeah, I mean, I've definitely noticed that myself in a wide variety of different contexts, including diff- numerous different countries. Like, I was struck by, you know, the first time that I traveled internationally post-COVID in uh, England and France, um, that the most skeptical takes on just the whole construct of COVID mitigation measures seem to be com- coming from working-class people, Canada as well. Um, I remember talking to a bartender in uh, Quebec City who, you know, after <laughs> we had gotten to talking for a little while, like kind of whispered to me saying, like, I don't know anybody who's even gotten this crap. Why are we still <laughs> doing this charade? And this is an otherwise, you know, just kind of normal guy who, um, you know, had to be uh, circumspect in his disclosure that he felt this way, but... Uh, clearly, his mindset was sharply divergent from the more just affluent types who kind of took on mask wearing as this marker of class status. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. But at, the, at the same time, though, I don't know. There are times where I, I see le- uh, lower class people who also seem to have accustomed uh, themselves to yeah. Yeah, mask wearing. Yeah, I don't know. Well, no, that's so what I, that's so what it's I'm kind saying. of ambiguous to me. I mean, I, 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 gen- I have seen what you're talking about, but then I have to contrast it with observations where, at times, it seems like lower class people might be even more disposed to wear masks as a matter of habit. So I'm actually, I'm actually not sure. I'm sort of have mixed observations. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, what I'm saying is that lower class people, um, I have been hit with COVID more so. So I think they they sense their responsibility. They're more in close contact. They're more exposed. And I find that in lower class communities and, and neighborhoods, they wear them everywhere. Whereas in the upper class, white, often white, but not necessarily all white, they seem to be more cavalier, casual. They want to, you know, appear and be social. Uh, in, in many ways, even though they used to be um, the ones that were, 
uh, having vaccinations as a marker of uh, uh, superiority or whatever it was. Now it seems like masks, which I think are more important, but masks somehow have been dispensed as a necessary marker of superiority, as if they somehow think they're never going to get it. They're not. They're, Tracy, they're not, no. you know what I mean? All right. Anyway. No, I mean, Tracy, vaccines are better than masks. I'm sorry. They work better. I mean, this is not something that's debatable. I think some people might be misinformed about this. And if so, that's, uh, that's, you know, a big burden to take on the rest of, you know, for the rest of your life. Maybe the question is, you, you know, is it, I, I have, I'm like, I'm with Mike. I, I don't see the clear class differences. I mean, I go to really fancy places and the only place that's ever, we have some vaccine, we have had some vaccine um, required passport requirements here in LA. The only place that ever checked for me was a, a bit like a fancy uh, Hollywood restaurant, um, which I don't go too often, but I saw Jerry Seinfeld there. So it was like, the, it was the only place that ever checked the, uh, uh, the vaccine mandate. So it's, it's really, was he, was he masked? Uh, he wasn't. No, nobody was masked. They just checked the vaccine uh, passport. And, uh, what's the what's well, the deal? You, what's you, the deal with masks? All, all those, <laughs> yeah, all those you walk by me. I'm like, that's scary. The, yeah. the celebrities wear. I mean, don't wear masks, right? It's their staff that wears the masks, right? AOC went to the Met Opera, and there she. No, a Met Opera, whatever. I'm with it was. you. I'm Met, with you Met show. Nobody should. Uh, nobody should wear masks i i I want the i want to free everybody i I think it's it's a terrible practice i mean if some people like it fine but nobody should feel compelled to they they make very little difference compared to vaccines and you know places have had mask mandates and places have not had mask mandates and there hasn't been um all that much of a difference uh but so many white people were so we're so convinced that if you got vaccinated, you couldn't get it and you couldn't give it. And that was not true, right? That was well, that's a... true with masks, too. You, you can still get it and you can still pass it on. It's just the which is which is more of a, uh, you know, which is more protective, protective is the question. Well, I, I All right. Thanks. Uh, so, sorry, Trace. We have to right, pro- yeah. proceed because we have a bunch of callers. Thank now you, I'm Trace. trying to now I'm trying to brainstorm Jerry Seinfeld and mask jokes like what's the deal with airline food and, and masks? <laughs> uh, <anyway>. Um <laughs> Cactus, well, you know cactus, Michael. Cactus is. I do. Something. I I remember. Yeah, I I remember cactus from uh, Clubhouse, I believe. Oh really, man? That was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of a little sick of the kind of societal analysis stuff. And and Richard knows, like Richard knows, I'm not one of like the racial differences people. But like, it, it's I don't it's know that. Like, How do I know? Societal. I'm obviously like this is obviously not societal. <laughs> Richard and Cactus have, have had in-depth discussions about right. racial differences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, what... like you just look at the mask stuff. Like people who are completely culturally different. Like I went to like a CPC like Conservative Party of Canada event in like this the super Asian community. Everyone still all of like the, the Asians are still wearing masks, right? And I and I really do think it's like literally just like a racial difference. Like there was some study that was like, oh, like you know before 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 COVID, more Asians were wearing masks because they're just like okay with it. It's like neoteny or like some like facial feature stuff. Right? And, and well, we don't know. Like, so I think what you're what you're getting at, Asians have less of a genetic propensity to get COVID, or they're just more careful. Now I don't know because I live around a lot. No, 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 not like COVID. Like, believe the plus- like the, the facial structure is just different. So like, oh, whether they're genetically more accepting of masks? That's what you're asking. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, like, I mean, it's possible. It's different, like, culturally different, different. Like. Uh, Wait, you're saying you're saying Asians are more accepting of masks because of yeah. their facial structure, or like <laughs> some kind of like genetic difference? Like this, this, you think, this is you just think like it's personality? You said that, right? Somewhere. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't hallucinate but that. Not because of, not because of, not because of their fa- face. It would be some kind of personality trait, right? It wouldn't be like a face 
like a face is more comfortable if you're wearing a mask if you're Asian. I don't think <laughs> is this, is, this is like specifically the reason, but there was actually I think like a, a New York Times article or something that that was like, oh, Japan was more com uh, com comfortable with masks because there's like more like neotenous traits, right? Which is basically like the, like an eye like a like an eye expressiveness thing. I don't know if this is like, oh. like, true. Like this is like this sounds this like a New York Times crisis shit. But like I, I do not think it's a societal difference. I, I just don't. Societal. You, there is a societal difference. You don't think it's a um, it's a it's a um, I, I don't think that's facial physiology. Well, yeah, that that seems like a silly theory. If anyone if anyone said that, you have any other uh, any other question, Mr. Cactus? I don't know. I have, I have tons of stuff, but uh, in the in the sake of brevity, right? I'm I'll uh, head out now. <laughs> okay. Back well, to the audience, at least. All right, yeah. thanks. Do you know Mr. John uh, Cactus? No, he doesn't know me. Do you know John von Neumann, uh, Michael? He doesn't know me. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Should I? This is that's, not, that's not my real Yeah, so Michael says, have you considered using, um, writing down explicit predictions and you know, using metaculus like Richard does? I saw um, he post that gives you a oh, so John von Neumann is he a math? He's a mathematician. Did he pioneer these uh, the the predictive odds things uh, that no, Richard that was, is obsessed uh, that was, with? Von Neumann did did everything else, but not that. No, but yeah, von but, Neumann but, but, was. Uh, I was going to ask you if you write down explicitly your predictions about the war. Um, you know, you 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 got a track record of not being so good. I can't I can't hear I can't hear you so well always. Could you speak a little oh. Yeah. Yeah, um just just if you have concrete predictions about what's gonna happen, uh you should you should write them down and compare your the accuracy of the prediction to the quote mainstream prediction. So you we can can't, we were, you're, you're cut out. You sounded good for a minute. Mr. Von Neumann, you sounded good for a second, but then the same same problem. Oh, uh, I'm saying that you should write uh, write write down your predictions and compare them to the mainstream predictions. Uh, you should you should do what Richard does and use Metaculus or something. Okay, Michael, um, are you uh, interested in doing that? No, because <laughs> it's like a fool's errand. I I just don't really think it's necessary to bind myself to any concrete predictions when it's just like a parlor. <laughs> it's like a parlor game. What? Um, well, yeah, it is. I mean, so like, who who will win the Republican nomination in two thousand twenty four? I mean, why should I? Why should I be bound cosmically to uh, just uh, an incomplete prediction that I? I mean, I have certain hunches, but I, I don't really feel like I need to quantify that so concretely into like a statement of odds as of July two thousand twenty two. I'm not sure what the utility is. But surely for some of these questions about Russia and Ukraine, you know, people make wrong empirical predictions or whatever. They'll say that there's going to be civil war But in Michael's the US. not doing that. Michael's, oh, not yeah. say, Michael's not saying Ukraine is going to collapse or Russia is going to collapse. Or some of these people do do this, and you want to get them to say, okay, what's the problem? Well, yeah, if, if you, if you do do that, if you do make hard and fast predictions, like Cenk uh, Uger at the Young Turks always did this. And, uh, you know, half the time or more, the predictions would be wrong. And then he would just ignore the t times he was wrong. And then on the handful of occasions when he was right, that would prove that he was some kind of uh, visionary. And I think, you know, so I think that's a, uh, that's a ridiculous routine. But I, I, I usually tr strive not to make just blasé predictions along those lines. And still, at the same time, I can provide an analysis that maybe 
gives, you know, expresses certain intuitions and um, senses I have that are hopefully empirically grounded, but I'm not sure why well, it's necessary to, to formulate that into a, into a numerical value. Because then you can figure out if your intuitions are good. You can measure it. And Richard's doing it. Richard does it. You should be more like that. <laughs> you know, just, because I, just because I do something about Mr. Von Neumann doesn't mean – Michael doesn't have to do it, too. I just – you know, it's, it's – uh, I, you know, I, I would say if he was the kind of guy who said, you know, 100%, you know, I think that Russia's about to collapse. You know, there's these people, their entire job is to make these, like, big, bombastic predictions about, like, crazy things happening, like the collapse of China. There's people who do this shit all the time. And, Richard, you, know, you made those some of these people, bad predictions really... well, right? Richard, you're one who's saying, you know, China will get it. Yeah, of course. You, you said China will get its TFR up to 1.8, 1.9. You said Russia's going to use nukes if they're losing. Well, we don't. Well, well China. No, wait. The China. The China stuff. The China stuff is not. Um, well, I mean, we could go through each one of these. The China stuff is not. Uh, it was by a certain date. I think I gave it like three, three or four years. The uh, Russia used nukes was if, as a last resort, Russia could use nukes if the, the war went into Ukraine's uh, favor. Um, and it was like not now. Russia is sort of now. Russia is sort of pushing forward recently, so that that's not valid either. But no, no, I have I, I, I do the predictions, and some have been validated, and some have not. Yeah, God. and this this might sound this might sound this might sound pompous, but for my purposes, I mean, my epistemology, I guess you would say, is more journalistic in nature. So I don't like to do just pure speculation as much as some others might. So, you know, Richard has a different epistemology, uh, epistemology, if you want to put it in those terms, where he feels like he gets some value from quantifying these predictions in a way. I mean, I, I do think it, it can be a useful corrective of the type of pundit who does just make these flippant predictions constantly and then never has to pay any price if half of them are wrong. Uh, but that's generally why I just kind of bypass the whole predictive parlor game um, as a whole. Anyway, all right. Yeah, but thanks for the recommendation. Always. Making... Uh, all right, okay. uh, Andrew, you're up. <laughs> now I'm embarrassed. That, now I'm embarrassed that I couldn't recognize that mathematician based on the uh, avatar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm always I mean, that, maybe maybe another reason why I don't want to make these predictions because I've always been horrible at math. So I, I, I'm sure I have low IQ because I was always no. You don't have subpar math. Enough. You don't have a low. You don't. You don't have a low IQ. Come on, Michael. You're, I was never you good at math. As good I'm at math you. as you are. You're, the, you're probably not good at math relative to your verbal skills. You're probably better than the average person. But most of these things are very highly correlated. I just want to just want to compliment Michael's. I, I don't, you're not high <laughs> All right. Thank. All right. Thank you. I'll uh, I'll I'll rise from my uh, fetal position. Yeah, I find the concept of uh, grading your own work a little confusing, personally, because you could take a claim like Russia's going to win or Russia's going to be winning and then, you know, throw a dart at a board and look at a Western open source intelligence Twitter or like you have independent where all the mainstream media gets its reports from. And they all say uh, Severodonetsk is not going to be taken. The Russians fell into a trap. They're going to be stopped here. And then like. A week and a half later, they've taken Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, and they're still saying, well, maybe Ukraine's winning if they killed enough Russians on the way in. So who's going to grade you? Are you going to grade yourself? Or are you going to uh, – I, I think I know who's going to grade you, and this relates to my question. 
Uh, you're familiar with Paul Mason and what's going on with the gray zone, correct? Both of you. I, I was named. No. I was named. Well, we we talked about this. I was named in a gray zone report as uh, being accused by Paul Mason, or actually referred by Paul Mason to his contact in the British Security Services for investigation. Yeah, so I'm familiar you, with it. Since yeah. Richard's not familiar, I'm glad you explained a little bit of that. And it seems to me like this. Well, is Richard like, and I talked. Richard and I talked about this on, on, on uh, Colin briefly. That's that's okay. right. Actually, I've I've I've, uh, I've I've got to go. If you want to continue this, I'm sorry, but I, I have to go right now. So if you want to continue this, Michael Gohan, I'll have to uh, check out. For you. Okay. So thanks, everyone. Bon voyage. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks, uh, every, so we'll go to the remainders, remaining callers without Richard. We'll have to just have his memory live on. <laughs> That's uh, that's that'll be fine. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, the thing I was going to ask is it's kind of like a set and spike operation. It seems like where these not, it, someone used the term gongos like government organized non government organizations that are just these cutouts for like Western intelligence to put out you know information on people, and then once that information's out there, these private outlets quote-unquote private outlets like YouTube use these sources to ban people like Jackson Hinkle. And it's just curious. Gongos like, is a great term, by the way. I'm going to have to steal that. It's not my term. Uh, one of the other callers came up with it, and I'm using it now. So gongos is great. Um, but, like, the point is, like, where where's the line? Because obviously they're not – I don't know. The, the, the line for, like, they're going to go after the gray zone. They're going to go after, I guess, like, tertiarily go after you but it, it doesn't seem like um there's like any clear line that you've crossed other than like mild disagreement or like the dsa mild disagreement so i, I how do you like other than setting up like on Substack and these independent places can you just not be on youtube because you can never know what's gonna set it off i mean there's no line there's no objective line well, at least for me, whatever mission Paul Mason might have launched to uh, ostracize me or investigate me seemed, at least prelu- preliminarily, to not have been effective because, like a week and a half ago, I was allowed to sit right in front of the British Prime Minister <laughs> and <laughs> nearly be able to ask him a question, at least if the press conference that he held at the NATO summit wasn't totally like pre-orchestrated but in any event i was physically in his presence so you would think if i was such a national security threat that i needed to be investigated by whatever spook paul mason was corresponding with that that might have precluded me from getting into that position but it uh it did not so doesn't seem to have gone according to plan yet for him yeah i wonder if they're going to get more aggressive and I think it works more effectively on people like Jackson Hinkle that are more just up and coming or just getting big. Like they're kind of playing whack-a-mole. Some of you guys have gotten a little too big maybe, or, and you do real journalism where you like travel and. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the, the, the thing scene, with me so. is like, uh, so, I mean, Jackson Hinkle, I don't want to be too pious about the virtues of journalism, right? Because there are plenty of horrendously bad journalists, but at least I, I attempt to incorporate journalism into what I do, whereas I don't think that really is the orientation of Jackson Hinkle. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not that familiar with him, frankly. But if I were subject to some of these reprisals, there, an argument could be made that it's actually an infringement on journalism because, I mean, I do write 
I do have relationships with different publications, and I've written for a lot of you know mainstream outlets over the years. So it would be a bit dicier, I would think, for one of these platforms or one of these kind of gongo <laughs> constellation of uh, actors to to act upon me. Um, whereas for a guy like um, Hinkle, again, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. He seems to be so in a somewhat different domain. I, I would say he's more like commentary. He he does report yeah. what I would consider breaking news in the sense that you're not going to see these reports or and he does interviews. So he interviewed McGregor. So there's definitely a journalistic component. Yeah. But it's more skewed towards a commentary commentary or. Yeah, which is fine, which it is, fine. which is what and that's and what I do. The problem is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. he's just too small and now he's going to be on rumble and like what's his reach going to be on rumble because you know the third strike's coming and then he's gone for good on youtube it's not a question they're just you know <laughs> what the first two are arbitrary so anyway uh, thanks for your thoughts and uh, i'll hang up yeah yeah thanks andrew all right uh gonna blow past to kate eric has already been up so we're gonna skip him kate you're up Apologies if you had your uh, sights set on also interacting with Richard, but you had to duck out. Kate, are you there? Kate going once. Kate going twice. If you're not familiar, Kate, you got to unmute yourself by pressing the little microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner of the app. And unfortunately, Kate cannot be heard from... Feel free to join back right now if you can or join some other time. Heidi, you are up. Hello again. Hi. Hi, Michael. Uh, good to talk to you again. Um, I am curious about something. Uh, the other day, Aaron Mate had, uh, what do you call it? I can't remember what the title of his show was, but I, I, was at, I caught it at the end and I kind of got blown off, so I didn't get a chance to ask my question. And this is something I would like to hear from, you know, a journalist in your caliber. Um, <clears throat> I went to look at what the follow-up for Bucha was, and all I saw was that there was some, you know, uh, I don't know, contention that it was Russian paratroopers, and, you know, they had this proof, and they sent out these these pictures and I didn't know, I wanted to know if there's been any kind of exhaustive, uh, uh, you know, like in-depth investigation into what happened there. Uh, are we ever going to know? Um, and then I saw a headline that said, you know, like the UN, like Russia opposed the UN investigation. And the last I had heard before that was that Russia was actually trying to get the UN to investigate it. So uh, can you give any insight on that? Yeah, well, my recollection was that Russia did seek to petition whatever UN body that would have been, that would have authority over investigating investigating something like that to, to launch an investigation. Now, maybe I'm mixing something up, but that's my recollection. And I don't think that's come to fruition or there's been no movement on it as far as I know. You know, but I don't, but one thing that I would recommend is to go look at what the journalist journalist Seth Harp has said about this because he was in the area of Buka around the time that the massacre purportedly occurred. And just to be clear, I'm not denying that a massacre occurred. I'm just, you know, refraining. And this has been my inclination from the outset. 
I'm refraining to definitively opine on things that I can't conceivably confirm one way or another. And I know there's been additional reporting on it, and that has some weight to take into account. I would just recommend go li- listen to what Seth Harp said. He was on the, um, the War Nerd podcast with uh, Mark Ames and uh, John Dolan, is it, uh, in April, May sometime? And he had just gotten back from Ukraine, and he happened to be at maybe a town or two over from Buka when that happened. And in order to go and examine what happened in Buka, you had to go to a Ukraine government checkpoint. I mean, the journalists had to go. Right. And then they were ferried by Ukrainian soldiers on like a predetermined route around the area. Um, <clears throat> so it wasn't like in that immediate aftermath when they were presenting all those images that it was some kind of uh, free-form journalism that was being allowed to just be conducted uninhibited. It was under the authority of the Ukraine military at the time that the journalists had access at all to that area. Now, that doesn't mean that it was <coughs> fabricated or staged or anything. It just means that additional inquiries were would be necessary to confirm or deny anything. Um so uh and, and I think you know the the uh pretty stringent controls imposed on what journalists can do by the Ukrainian authorities is not an aspect of how these narratives that get constructed uh, that that really is much um publicized and it, it ought to be because it's a huge factor and 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 Seth Harp, who actually also just did a a, a good article in the latest issue of Harper's Magazine, which I would recommend getting. Actually, Harper's is the only magazine that I have a physical subscription to because it's one of the very few uh, magazines nowadays that actually is genuinely genuinely heterodox and not in like a tedious, knee-jerk way. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good magazine. Um, and he had a, he had a, a piece, from, reported piece from Ukraine uh, uh, in the latest issue. So I'd recommend reading that and also just take a look at what he said about this. And it's, it at least gives it an additional layer of context to how it is that, that those initial reports anyway came to be broadcast to the wider public. And those initial reports were crucial because that um, <coughs> came at a time when, at least according to some accounts, there was a possibility that there could be some sort of diplomatic I don't know if you want to call it a breakthrough, but some kind of diplomatic uh, development that might have led to some, at least maybe temporary ceasefire or something, because if you remember, that was when Russia seemed to change strategy and they withdrew troops from the Kiev area and then began to focus on the south and east. Um, but then once that happened, you know, Biden calls Putin a war criminal and says he's committing genocide. Actually, Trump also uh-huh. said it. Uh, and it yeah. kind of... <coughs> Sorry, COVID. Trump blew uh, it blew up any prospect of movement along a, a diplomatic route. So it was pretty important that it was fra- that that those events were framed in the way that they were. Again, yeah. I'm not denying that there was a massacre. There very well may have been. Actually, one of the reasons why I opposed the Russian invasion is because once you unleash, you know, amped up men in their <laughs> in their teens and twenties into a volatile situation. 
you never know what could happen. So it's it's it seems perfectly plausible that there was a tro- there were atrocities there. It's just that sure. you know there there should be more circumspection exerted in um, relaying fact uh, the, the the purported facts of events like that, and there really wasn't, and it was seized upon immediately to derail any kind of um, cessation in hostilities that may or may not have been in the offing at that point. That's exactly why I'm asking about it, because the whole thing is like it got reinvigorated or something after that. And it seems the con- the timing was so convenient and the uh, restriction of journalistic efforts seems so restrained. Investigative efforts were so restrained. That's part of the reason why I'm asking about it, because it kind of just uh, it, 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 re- uh, it made it all worse. It seems to me that was kind of like a bad turning point. Yeah, but I, uh, I well, looked at, I agree with that. At, at Harper's and I'll read that article. And thank you so much for the reference. OK, thanks, Heidi. And now let's finally go to Jonah and then we shall uh, wrap it up. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. Good. Yes. I wanted to use the, the absence of a defined topic today to actually ask you about the, uh, the passing of uh, Tony Sirico. The guy that played Polly in the Sopranos. Yeah, I, thank I know you. Because I, uh, I know you're, you're well, I'm in mourning, right? so I don't know if I could gather my thoughts really to well, address this. But, but but please, yes. Do you have any thoughts about <laughs> Tony? Because the best piece you ever wrote, as far as I'm concerned, was when you went to that Sopranos yeah. like, reunion like a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'm glad you remember that. Yeah, that, that was me branching out from my ordinary uh, journalistic focus into more uh, cultural commentary. Yeah, because, you know, I wrote that piece <coughs> in part because um, so this was the 20th anniversary of the premiere of The Sopranos. Right. Um, yeah, so it wasn't actually the 20th anniversary, if I'm remembering right, because the the uh, pilot of the, of the Sopranos, or maybe it was. The, sorry, the pilot of the Sopranos was filmed in '97, didn't air until like a year and a half or two years later. So the first season was '99, right? Um, and so 2019 was the 20 year anniversary, and the Sopranos did this. Um, the cast and crew of the Sopranos had this 20 year anniversary event with you know David Chase and everybody else at the IFC Center in Manhattan. And uh, I somehow managed to get in <laughs> and uh, did, yeah, a write-up on it for uh, The Spectator. And one of the things I noticed was that, <coughs> I think one of the observations I made in that piece was that there was sort of uh, air of sadness about it because Tony Sirico in particular, you know, Paulie Walnuts, didn't seem like he was in great shape. Um, you know, he was lucid enough that he could dish out a couple of one-liners that were amusing, but he was, you know, you could tell visibly uh, on the verge of maybe no longer being able to participate in public events like that anymore. Actually, he was less lucid than... Um, than Junior. Than the Dominic Chinese, yeah, the yes. guy who plays Uncle Junior, who's like, uh, he's, I think he's in his mid-90s now. Yeah, and, um, and Hesh, yeah. the guy that played Hesh. And Hesh, uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, so... Um, you know, when, when Tony Sirico was reported to have died, I, I, I was almost, in a way, it was almost celebratory because I think he was living in an assisted living facility down in Florida somewhere. Oh, uh, was he? And, um, 
it's kind of a minor miracle that he even lived to 79 because, you know, he was in jail for a long time. He was connected to organized crime, as people know, if they're into Sopranos lore. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, but the <coughs> Sopranos was, had extra layers of meaning to me in particular, which you, you'll know if you read the piece, because it was filmed in North, the Soprano household was North, uh, based in North Caldwell, New Jersey. I'm from West Caldwell originally. So Sopranos was always in the ether as I was growing up. Um, and if you watch the show, there are these hyper-local references to, like, this little speck of territory in West Essex County, New Jersey, that you would only get if you happened to live there. Like, right. they would, there would be references to street names or references to uh, shops and stuff, uh, some of which were, like, in my little nondescript town. So Sopranos had this outsized significance for me uh, and, and had additional kind of, uh, you know, layers of enjoyment that could be derived from it. So, yeah, I did go to that <laughs> 20th anniversary thing and just tried to <laughs> reflect on, you know, Sopranos 20 years on, you know, as somebody who happened to have this, like, quasi-personal connection to it. So, yeah, of course it was sad when Tony Sirico died, but... It's one of those deaths where you have to just, you know, tip your cap and say, okay, this guy, <laughs> this guy probably should never have lived to be 279, so got to just uh, say, uh, you know, farewell, friend. <laughs> yeah, it's more a, a celebration of, uh, of life. But that, that, that piece you wrote, it was so beautifully written, and that's when I think I became like a, a quote-unquote sort of like diehard fan of yours because you demonstrated so much range and – Obviously, you can write. But I want to ask you one question about Polly. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. But I, I want to ask you about one question about Polly as, as a character. Because he was basically, out of the, um, the core group, he was pretty much the only one that survived until the end. Right? Like, everyone else was killed. Yeah. And it's weird. Sylvia was Polly in a coma, was a complete... so it wasn't clear that Sylvia died. But, yeah, I mean, he was the only... Polly was the only one who wasn't, like, violently... Uh, attacked in some way. He, I mean, basically, I think the implication was that he was going to be left alone because his final scene, he was sitting in front of the uh, the pork store. Yeah, with the cat. With the cat by himself. Who was possessed by Christopher. <laughs> or, or, or I thought that was the ghost of Adriana. That was my... Oh, really? Okay. Well, the, the superficial reading of it was that it was possessed by Christopher. Because it was funny because Polly was always the most superstitious character right like he went right. to this that seance or something in one episode yes. where yeah. you know he's um he ends up storming out and throwing a chair because the psychic leader or something yeah. says that he's communicating with i guess somebody who paulie whacked back in the day or you know <laughs> so Paul, paulie's always it's funny because paulie you know obviously he's a brutal killer just like the other characters but he, he gets very easily spooked by, you know, the prospect of ghosts or spirits and stuff, which is funny. Yeah. And, and he also didn't really, like, he wasn't plagued with existentialism the way Christopher was, right? Remember that right. conversation they had? Yet, I just thought, like, Paulie was the ultimate sort of wild card. Like, anything could happen. Like, like a simple pickup, a collection, could result in the Pine Barrens, right? Just by him throwing the TV remote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... You know, one of the best ep- season. I, I maintain that season six is actually the best season. I don't know if that's a considered a hot take, 
But one of the best episodes is when Paulie and Tony take a trip down to Miami. Right. And uh, Tony contemplates killing Paulie because he remembers <laughs> Paulie, um, Paulie telling the joke about Ginny Sack. I mean, we're getting deep into the weeds of Sopranos yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but, and Tony decides not to do it, but it shows you just how kind of bizarre these relationships really are if tony actually was entertaining seriously the prospect of killing paulie who he's known through his entire life because paulie was you know older than tony right so he was like this uh almost like uh stand-in paternal figure because tony's father died or uh, young and yet still they're sitting on this boat tony doesn't know for sure if paulie did say the joke paulie did right. say the joke uh, you know, as he the told audience Johnny. knows. Yeah. yeah, he told Johnny. Or, yeah, that's right. He didn't say the joke himself, but he told Johnny about the joke, right? Yeah. And that, spent, that sent into motion this whole, you know, spiral of ridiculous escalating events to the point that it almost, like, launched a mob war, right, between New York and New Jersey. Um, yeah. Uh, but even with all that history and all that legacy – and even though Paulie is one of the few remaining, because you know, remember Bobby Bacaleri had just been killed. Yep. Or, or uh, no, I actually don't think he had been killed yet. But anyway, the 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 people around Tony who are at all loyal is fast dwindling, and yet even then he's still contemplating the idea of whacking Paulie, even though Paulie, you know, he's just a soldier ultimately who just stuck around. Um, he's not like an existentialist type, like. Christopher, who really, you know, was conflicted about very much uh, having to do with his lifestyle. Right. Um, and if anything, you know, the Pauly comes across as a bit pathetic at times because, you know, he had, yes. never has a family. Um, you know, he, he, he never ha- even Tony complains about this, right, because Pauly doesn't have a life outside <laughs> the mob. Uh, yeah. And to the point that Pauly at one point gets a painting commissioned – of Tony in this like Napoleon yeah. get up with a horse yeah. and everything, and then Tony goes crazy over it. <clears throat> um, so it, it just, I guess, it shows the ultimate kind of superficiality and hollowness of their whole social arrangement. That at that point, Tony would even ser- would seriously consider killing Paul. He doesn't do it, but the tension is building really thick in that scene where Tony is, you know. Uh, contemplating this and yeah so i mean paulie would have been a fairly straightforward kind of one-dimensional character yeah earlier on in the show he kind of was like if you watch season one um paulie is really just primarily uh comic relief and he's comic relief throughout the whole series just because of his mannerisms right and the wings you know yeah his germophobia and all this yeah um but because Tony is increasingly in a desperate predicament as the series wears on, he has no choice but to like look at Paulie as having multiple dimensions. And it, that alone is sort of a pathetic situation for even Tony to be in. Um, because, like, I mean, who's Paulie? Paulie's just, you know, he's, again, he's just sort of a grunt. Um, so anyway, he was, he was probably like the most useless guy to Tony because yeah. Silvio, Silvio was the advisor. He managed the Bing Bobby. At least Tony could pawn Bobby off on junior and then later Jan Janice. So, so he could take yeah, yeah. care of that for him. Um, Polly was never like a big earner, like Ralphie or Vito. 
He was just kind of a complete liability. Yeah, he wasn't like Junior where he had like wisdom to share about stuff. You know, he was just he was just there and he would be more trouble than he was worth half the time. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I guess he I guess it's just funny that he was able to like last until the end even though he was by far the most useless person. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. anyway. <laughs> anyways, Michael, good talking to you. I want to get your thoughts on the passing of the great uh Tony Sirico. Thank you for that. Keep up the good work. My my, and, my uh, fucking balls. That's so hell. <laughs> Sorry, right, to, sorry care. to anyone listening who's not familiar with The Sopranos. You're probably wondering what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> All, right. All right, thank, appreciate that, Jonah. You're welcome. Um, Take care. Bye. And that was an amusing note to end on. And I think we'll have to leave it there. Maybe I'll do a Sopranos-centric episode at some point if another beloved character passes on. All right, everybody. Uh, take care, and we'll uh, reconvene as always in the not-so-distant future. Bye-bye.